What a tremendous message that hymn has for us to always remember the faithfulness of our God. Oh, if only Saul had known that, if he had turned from his wicked ways. As we turn to the final sermon in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 31, uh, we'll be speaking on the topic of being at death's door. So as you're turning to our text, 1 Samuel 31, let me give a special welcome to those who are joining us uh, through the video live stream. Great to have you with us. We'd long to have you come. Things are opening up and uh, maybe your situation is changing. Please come out and enjoy the songs and the prayers and the fellowship of God's people here in Clifton Park. We'd love to meet you and minister to you. If there's anything we can do for you, please let us know. You can call, you can text, you can email the church. God bless you. We'll be reading the whole chapter and then we'll be hearing the sermon. From the English Standard Version, this is God's word. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Aminadab and Melchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there, and they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days." This is a sad story about the death of a king. And we all know from Western history and perhaps global history that when there's a death of a king, there's usually a a great pronouncement. The king is dead. Long live the king. I remember as a child hearing that and, and I was rather confused. Not sure when I first heard it, maybe watching a movie. The king is dead, long live the king. What what is that phrase about? Well, 
It tells us that when there's the death of one monarch, there's usually someone to replace him, his son or someone else. And in that moment, to reassure the people and to recognize the continuity of of a kingdom, they say that phrase. I think it's, it's known in multiple languages. The French have their own version of it. The king is dead, long live the king. But here, on this day in Israel, we only hear the first half. The king is dead. And the book ends on this very sad, tragic note. We know what God's been doing. We know the king, the anointed one, David, is in the wings, ready to serve God's people and God's cause in the world and to do so with a godly heart. Indeed, the whole book of 1 Samuel has been about uh, these key individuals and their standing before the Lord. And David was a man after God's own heart. Saul, although outwardly religious, outwardly serving at times, had a bad heart and did not belong to the Lord in that way. So here we only hear of the death and the sadness And as Ralph Davis says in his commentary, it is a dark time for the kingdom of God, but, don't you like that word? It says there's more to the picture. It was a dark time, but God's word, he says, shows that even this darkness is not outside God's purpose. It falls within the boundaries of what he has already announced, these events. We can be assured of God's word of promise to David, In darkness or light, what matters is having a God who speaks a true and a faithful word. God had announced the very things that happened on this day. God knows what each day brings forth. Indeed, God is sovereign over history. He knows our predicaments. He knows our tomorrows. He knows the day of our death. When we will stand at death's door, God is on his throne. And his word is a safe and sure refuge. This text will help us see the climax of the contrast between David and Saul. And it will help us to find our strength in the Lord for living and for dying. Let's look at it under these three headings. The first one, thus Saul died. It's a sad phrase, one of the saddest phrases in the text. And you can see how the chapter, as it begins, gives that first verse. It's a summary of the whole event. And then in verses 2 and following, it gives the details. They unfold. Very uh, Semitic way of speaking to give the the title. There was the fight, the battle, and the men of Israel fled and fell slain. People died. Thus, Saul died. And that's the sad climax in verse 6. Saul, the king, the antagonist here to the Lord's anointed, Jonathan died as well, but Jonathan died fighting and died valiantly, we can assume. It was Saul who did otherwise. It's interesting that when Saul tried to get his armor bearer to take his life at the end, that great cowardly act, oh, slay me so I don't fall into the enemy's hands, his armor bearer feared to touch the Lord's anointed Some of you have been with us through most of the series, and you might remember back several chapters to Saul's first armor bearer of note. Do you remember who that was? David. 
was once armor-bearer to the king. Would David have thrust Saul through? No. We know when David had opportunity to take Saul's life, he did not. Respect for the Lord's anointing, anointed one because these men feared Jehovah, but not Saul. So Saul brings about his death by his own hand. Saul commits suicide. We're not going to talk at length about suicide. It's here in the text. The king of Israel does it, but he's not a king after God's own heart. He's not doing this by faith, but out of fear. Suicide is a sin. As some have described it, it is a reckless rush into the Almighty's presence. It is a grossly presumptuous thing to take the life that God has given you. It is prohibited in God's word. But the sin of Saul in taking his own life was simply the climax of a lifelong pattern of self-choices, self-will exercising itself. He was rejecting God long before that day. And that's what we should notice. Saul had claimed in his last discussion with Samuel during the seance, he said, God has departed from me. No, Saul. You have departed from God. God is on the throne and you have disobeyed him. You've disobeyed. You have downgraded your faith. You have disgraced your crown. God has rejected you because you have disobeyed him. There's really a a domino effect. Do you know what that phrase means? Anybody ever still play with dominoes anymore? It's a very simple toy little blocks. I don't know how to play the game dominoes, but I know how to play with them. And I I once tried to set up a whole design and tip the first one over and it knocks the next one and it knocks the next one and really fun. Unless while you're setting it up, you bump it. And then they all fall down and you start over. And you can see on YouTube sometimes thousands of these things going, and it's beautiful how people design these things. But one simple touch at the beginning, begins this course of effect. That's what we see in Saul's life. This is the last domino to fall. His sins early on of, of pride and, and self-will, when God had said exactly what to do, Saul said, no, I think this is better. And he continued in that strain for years and years. The old Scottish preacher William Blakey says, It's very seldom indeed that the consequences of any sin terminate with itself. Sin, he says, has a marvelous power of begetting, of leading you on to other acts that you did not think of at first. Ever hear the testimony of a drunk driver? He pleads guilty in the courtroom. He says, I didn't mean to kill that person. When I lost control of the car, I'm so sorry. And it wasn't a choice to run someone over. It was a choice to take one too many drinks of alcohol. And the domino effect where drunkenness might lead you. We should pay attention because that's the way sin works. The consequences of any one sin seldom terminate with that one choice. So if you're thinking of yourself saying, well... I'm going to sin just this one time. This isn't a big deal. 
Remember the life of Saul. How presumptuous is it that you can play with fire and not be burned? You see, Saul's problem, (laughs) I like the way two young commentators, uh, J.D. Greer and a guy named Thomas, wrote uh, a new commentary, and they put it this way. They said, Saul's problem was not the Philistines. Saul's problem was not Goliath. Saul's problem was Saul. They said, God could have conquered all his enemies. He had promised it, but Saul refused to trust God. And at every turn, he trusted in himself. You know, Saul was religiously active. He went to some meetings. He, he hung out with some religious leaders. He even had a spiritual experience or two along the way. Is Saul among the prophets, right? Early on, he had a victory. Remember the little town of Jabesh-Gilead? They'll be coming up later. He protected them and freed them from the Philistines. He rescued them. He had some victories along the way. And his goal as king was to to be a military conqueror and do that part and do what he thinks is best. He beat most of the people of the Amalekites. He kept a few things for himself, but he was active in the kingdom of God. But he was in it for himself. He was not trusting God. He was not satisfied with God. He was still a self-centered person. You look into the heart of Saul and you don't see Jesus. You see Saul. Do you know it's possible to be religiously active but not saved? You could be in the church choir and not be saved. You could be an officer in the church. You could be a Sunday school teacher in the church and not saved. You could do many things for Jesus and not be saved. I need to pause here. Because I'm talking to a lot of religious people here. You're not here to play tennis. You're here to to worship. The warning is for us. Being religious does not make you right with God. What we see in Saul's case is the proof that the wages of sin is death. And oh, that Saul had seen that the outward things he did or his remorse over some of the things he did was not the same as repentance and faith and trust in God. Religious friends, heed this warning from God's word. Know if your heart is right with God. Not just your schedule, your agenda, your resume. Is your heart right with God? It's a good time to remind you what Jesus said about that last day when he will appear. It's recorded in Matthew 7. Many will come to him and and say, Lord, Lord, and he will turn them away. And they say, we did all these things for you. And he will say, he won't say you didn't do enough. He will say, I never knew you. Frightening. To think of seeing Jesus, pulling out your resume. Oh, I've been busy. I I was at work day. I did this. I did that. I got a Bible. I read it. Jesus looks at these busy ones. He says, "I, I never knew you. You never knew me. That's Saul. May it not be any of us. 
First Samuel chapter 31 has a, a section here, and, and so I'll comment on it. This middle section about uh, these evil Philistines uh, showing disgrace and dishonor. We'll just mention it briefly, what's going on here. We see that evil men glory in death and destruction. There's this open disgrace of the bodies of the king and his sons. They haven't just won the victory. and They're not just taking the spoils. They cut off the head. They, they nail the dead bodies to the city wall. And they let everybody know. They abuse the king's body. Now, normally in, in warfare, when you have a victory and you do things like that, that might stir up the population. That might bring about reprisals or insurrection. But these men, they openly disgrace the bodies and they assume that there will be no reprisals. They've seen the people flee. That's how bad off things were in those days. It's interesting that even in the New Testament, book of Philippians, of all places, in Philippians chapter 3, there's a passing comment about how bad the enemies of God can be. Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. This is New Testament talk. That's today talk. There are enemies. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, their, their passions and lusts. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That describes these Philistines. The Old Testament gives us a picture of man and his depravity. Focus on death. I have power. I can cut off the king's head. I, I, can, I can openly mock the king of Israel and his sons. Nail their bodies to the wall. Let the world know who I am and the power I have over life and death. That's what these evil men are doing. It's as if they say in their heart there is no God. They glory in their shame. It still happens today. These evil men mock the Lord God. Do you see that... <laughs> They sent people to tell the quote-unquote good news. The ESV is very clear here. The Philistines thought they had good news. It's like they had a gospel to share. Saul is dead, and even more so, the king of Israel means that we've beaten the king and his God. They openly mock Jehovah. They, they send out messengers, and they place some of the, the items in the temples of their idols. It's kind of sad, and, and maybe the text is even mocking them, that they had to send messengers uh, to, uh, verse 9, the Philistines, to carry the good news to the house of their idols, because the idols wouldn't have known about the victory unless someone came and told them. You know, idols, they have very limited capacity. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shehan. They're mocking God. Israel is crushed, says Dale Davis. That's sad. But there is a deeper sadness that Jehovah is mocked. What a disgrace. It's as if these evangelists are saying, we beat your king and we beat your God. And they're boasting in that. Perhaps we didn't notice. They're trying to recreate. You remember something earlier on when the Philistines 
captured the ark of God. This is early in the book. And they brought the ark of God to their city and they placed it in the temple of their idol Dagon. In the morning, Dagon's fallen over. They prop him up and he falls over and he breaks his head off. And they say, we've got to get rid of this ark. Remember that? Now they take this symbol of Jehovah, the king, and his head and his armor, and they put it at the feet of their pagan gods, saying, we've won. Nobody's fallen over now. They're, they're deluding themselves. I would even go so far as to say these evil men are ignorant of ultimate realities. These evil men are ignorant of ultimate realities. Let me remind you what we read in Psalm 2. In your Bibles, you can turn quickly to Psalm 2. I'll, I'll read it. The book of Psalms starts out with Psalm 1, which is really a summary of the whole Christian religion, to fear God and walk in his ways, to know his word, and to be blessed. Psalm 2 is really a summary of the way of the world. And it's so fitting here. But the, the pagans are ignorant of these things. The scriptures tell us. It pulls back the curtain and shows us spiritual realities, historic realities. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and these rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today have I begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 from the Word of God. Why do the nations rage? Why do they think there's something when they're not? God just laughs. They think they've killed off Israel and Jehovah. The king is dead. No new announcement. It'll come several chapters later into the next book. But they're ignorant of ultimate realities. God had a king. He had David ready. And in terms of global history, he had David's greater son ready, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and to conquer ultimately. Let's look at a third scene here in our text this morning in 1 Samuel 31. There's just a quick passing look of kindness and hope in the story. And I'll, I'll mention this before we get to some significant applications. And we're going to linger over the applications this morning. But here there's this word of kindness and hope. You see, something that happened earlier in the history in chapter 11 is being recalled by the men of Jabesh Gilead. First, let's look at the text. 
Saul's been abused. And verse 11 says, When the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night, it's about a 22-mile round trip, and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. There's a recovery mission, not a rescue mission, a recovery mission by some men from this little, if you will, obscure city. Why do they go? Why do they go? They remember that Saul had shown kindness to them. Saul had preserved and protected the city once upon a time. It's one of the few bright spots of Saul's resume that the Lord used him to to save this village. And so a debt is repaid by grateful, valiant men. It's interesting what they do as they recover the bodies that have been out and exposed for some time since the battle had ended, a day or two. They burn the bodies. That's typically not done in, among God's people of old. Cremation is not something the Bible endorses. But they burn the bodies and they preserve the bones and bury them in a grave near Gibeah under a tree. Interesting that we see that phrase and that closure Why under a tamarisk tree in Gibeah? Is that just a Bible thing to throw the detail in there? Well, if we're careful readers, we remember, like back in chapter 22, uh, Saul was sitting under a tree in that same vicinity. And that seems to be Saul's hometown area. And that may have been a special spot for him growing up and even as an adult, his place to think, his place to hang out. And others knew it. And it is as if they bring his bones home. He and his sons. The remains are buried there. An act of honor and respect because he was the king's anointed. Godly, valiant people acting uprightly, doing what they can, even in those dark days. But why? I think there's something more that's hinted at. It's part of a biblical worldview, so let me just linger over it. What is the hope here? I think they're showing respect for the bodies of the king and his sons because that's the Christian way. To understand that men and women are made in the image of God and the body, even in death, is to be treated with dignity. You know, death is not a part of God's good creation. Death is the consequence of sin. Death is always sad. It's always tragic. It's the rendering of soul and body. The immaterial from the material. And if you've ever seen a dead body, it looks vacant and lifeless. But a shell. Even if it's a one you've loved. It's not natural. But we're told in the Bible that there will be a resurrection of the living and the dead. Meaning bodies and spirits will be rejoined. Because that's how God created us. To have bodily existence. Here in this world and in the world to come. And the worldview of the Bible is that the body, even in death, should be treated with respect. Because there's a world to come. There will be a resurrection. And it will bring about a glorified body for believers. And we will have a physical existence in heaven above. But out of fear of God and respect for his image in a human being, the body should be treated respectfully. 
It's a reminder of hope, that there's something beyond. Many of you know the book of Job a little bit, or at least a few of the key verses from the book of Job. It's very good reading. If you haven't read it, I recommend it to you. We know the famous phrase from Job 19, verse 25, and following Job in the midst of his affliction. He's at death's door. But his testimony, and he's an ancient guy long before Saul, he said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Job knew his Redeemer lived. Job knew that there is life after death and that there will be a resurrection of the body and an accounting to God. That's the biblical worldview. So when someone in the world says death is, is, is a blessed state, no, death is temporary until that resurrection and all of us stand before God. We need to think biblically about death. And bodies. But here there is some hope. You know, later on, David, when you get to the end of Samuel, 2 Samuel, David will exhume those bones and give them a proper burial, treat them with respect when one of the latter descendants of Saul is dead. Christians should remember what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. But the sea and the earth will give up their dead. Bodies and souls will be reunited for the great day of God's judgment. And the sheep and the goat will be separated and eternity dawns. But here there's a kindness by these men of Jabesh Gilead. And it's something to be noted. Talking about death and looking at this sad passage makes it all the more important that I think as a pastor, I end with exhortations that can direct you to keep faith in God and to be ready when and not if, when you stand at death's door. So three words of exhortation. Let's take a minute or two on each. First, do not fear those who can only kill the body. Let me take you to the New Testament, to the book of Luke. Jesus is teaching in Luke chapter 12. It's also recorded in Matthew and Mark in in similar ways. Jesus was warning warning about Pharisees and those who would mislead you and misguide you and even persecute you. And in Luke 12, verses 4 and 5, Jesus said this, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Christians, you need not fear those who can only kill the body and, as Jesus said, have nothing more that they can do. That's the worst they can do. 
He says you need to be in a right relationship, an awe relationship, a fear and a trust and a submission to God who can take your life. And after that, when you're resurrected into eternity, he can send you to hell. Saul, Saul, do you know, do you know the choice you're making? You're fearful of these pagans capturing your body and having some hours of misery at their hands while you reject the divine one who can send you to hell for an eternity. Believers, don't fear those who can only touch the body. Yes, martyrdom is not something we would desire. Yes, death is painful and and frightening as it approaches. But for the Christian, the fear of death has been dealt with in Christ. And doors of hope and windows of hope have been opened. And fresh breezes of heaven even now blow upon the believer even at death's door. And my friends, you know the one who can open or close that door. He is Jesus, the one you love. Do not fear those that can only kill the body. Faith fears God most of all and trusts him most of all. It's faithless to fear men more. A second exhortation is to know that God is still God even in the dark and cloudy days of life. God is still God. The Bible speaks today, commentary puts it this way, Israel may be defeated, Saul may have failed in his task of freeing Israel from the Philistines, but God was still God. This stands as a reminder to those of God's people today who live in situations where the church appears to be defeated either by physical persecution, by secularist indifference. God is still God. It is such a grief to me to drive by church buildings that are closed or that they've been sold and now they're a quilt store or an arts and crafts venue or a condominium sold to the highest bidder, a church. It makes me feel sad and I feel there's been a loss But even in the sense of that, God is still God. God has purposes and ways that are beyond our understanding. God will bring about the greatest days of the kingdom of Israel through David. Now that Saul has received his promised judgment. God is at work. God will defend his glory in the world. There are seasons where we don't understand how that's unfolding. But we should trust him nonetheless. You know, a minute ago I quoted from Philippians about those uh, men who, uh, their glory and their shame. They have their mindset on earthly things. That Philippians passage, chapter 3, continues with positive words for the believer here. There are these wicked people in the world, they glory in their shame, but you, believer, remember God is still God. He says this in verse 20 and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him 
even to subject all things to himself. Our God reigns. Our God has power to put it all back together the way he wants. Even as evil men glory in their shame and oppose his people, God gets the final word. And God's at work today. Know that. Don't fear men and know that your God is ever at work. He doesn't ever call in sick. He's never asleep on the job. God never sleeps or slumbers. He's always at work. When you hear from a doctor that you've got the worst form of brain cancer there is, that's about as dark as I can imagine right now. But God is still God. God is still working in this world for his glory. And on the dark day we call Good Friday, through the darkest day in the history of creation, God brought about a powerful transformation in the lives of his people for eternity. God is still God. Trust him. His word shall stand. Nothing can change that. Remember that. Bank your life on it. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. You know what you're doing. I don't. But I trust you. And I want to fine-tune that with the final application this morning. Trust the true victor over death. The Lord Jesus Christ was a king rejected by men, treated shamefully and killed. And the enemies of God thought they had triumphed over Jehovah by killing the anointed one. Psalm 2 is forgotten once again, even in Jesus' day. Do you know Psalm 2 is quoted six times in the New Testament? The men of the New Testament, as God inspired them to write the scriptures, knew those eternal realities. The world may mock that it killed and crucified Jesus, but therein God gets his victory. God has set his anointed one on his holy hill. Kiss the sun, lest you perish in the way. The New Testament authors knew Psalm 2. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching. Do you remember that big sermon on the day of Pentecost? Do you know what he says? This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. The New Testament explains that David died and his tomb was with them to this day. David was not the ultimate king we we're all waiting for. Good king, his story's told in 2 Samuel and throughout the scriptures. But David died. Trust the true king, the true victor over death. As Peter says... God raised him up because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Trust Christ who has beaten death. 
conquered death in his own death. In the call to worship this morning, I quoted from Jesus' final words to the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1, where Jesus assured us, assured him and us with these words. Powerful today as we consider being at death's door. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he, Jesus, laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. When I hear of announcements of terminal prognosis, when I know someone's facing their end, if they believe in Jesus, I remind them of this verse from the lips of Jesus. If you're at death's door, don't worry. Jesus has the keys. He may not open it. He might. But you don't have to worry about that. Jesus has the keys of death. Long live the true king. Long live the true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. May you trust and serve him today and always. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word today. Your word which strengthens our faith, which informs our understanding of life and death and life after death. Oh, Father, I pray that you awaken anyone who's merely religious like Saul. And may they give you their heart. May they be like David. Father, may they trust in Christ. We thank you for his powerful victory on behalf of sinners. We thank you for his promises that he will never leave us nor forsake us. The truth he proclaimed that he has the keys of death itself. Oh, Father, give each one here eternal life. And when our day comes to pass into it, may we behold the face of our Savior in glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.